Welcome in to another episode of Patrick Jones Baseball, where we find the best tools to build the best players. I'm currently in Kinston, North Carolina. We are in a, a six-game road trip, so we're in Kinston, North Carolina for the next six days. Got a um, pretty pretty big series against them with Texas Rangers, low-A affiliate. So it should be fun. I know they've got a very good team. I'm actually currently watching the Home Run Derby in the background. So wanted to get this episode, uh, the intro done and, and out. So Tuesday morning, everyone can can listen to this. Um, got a great episode for those who are interested in the um, strength conditioning portion of, of baseball. You know, we have a great guest on this episode and Kevin Poppy. He is the co-owner of DST Performance in Houston, Texas. So we get into you know what it's like when when an athlete walks into DST Performance for the first time, some of the evaluations that they like to do. We go over general strength training for high school baseball players, knowing what exercises you should be doing as a professional baseball player external versus internal cueing, the Tommy John epidemic. So we go over a lot of different topics. So if you're someone who is interested, again, in the strength conditioning realm and in professional baseball for high school, college, professional players, this is going to be a great episode for you to to stick around and listen to. Um, If you haven't, please make sure to go subscribe on iTunes and leave us a review. Greatly appreciate it. Helps the overall rating of the show, so more coaches can uh, can learn more and help more players. Ladies and gentlemen, here is the episode with Kevin Poppy. All right. We are now live with Kevin Poppy. Kevin, thanks for coming on the show today. Appreciate you having me. Anytime. So you're the you're the owner of DST Performance in Houston. Um, take me through like how long have you been the owner of that facility and like just a little bit of your background. Right. So I'm I'm actually part of a three person ownership group. Um, it's myself, Lee Fioki, who's the head strength coach with the LA Angels. And uh, Josh Graber, who's a longtime friend of ours. Um, I've been, I became an owner officially, I think in 2016, but it's really something that we have been talking about since 2013, 2014. Um, Got into the industry about 10 years ago um, and um, working with Lee directly, uh, started helping him build out Dynamics Force Training, DST, and then we, we're blessed enough to be to open our second location uh, on the north side of Houston, and that was when I moved out in 2014 uh, to run that facility, and that's when we unofficially made me an owner, but it didn't officially happen. Get the paperwork done until about 2016. So yeah, that's been pretty much the the track ten years. So is it specifically? baseball players you guys do everybody like what how many like what type of uh setup is it so we train athletes of all ages from from youth through professional olympic level athletes um uh started personally i started with uh, high school teams and adult fitness boot camps um until i was able to like prove my worth enough to get um more of uh private clients and and build out from there but 
I mean, we really work, our largest client, client base is probably high school and youth athletes. And then we've been blessed to work with a, a good number of professional higher level athletes and collegiate athletes as well. It seems that some of the setups in the, um, at private gyms now, like has expanded into not just lifting, but they have like hitting. And I see like either even coordinators and pitching coordinators at some of these facilities. Do you guys do that? Or is it specifically just training performance? So our company started out specifically strength conditioning, speed and agility, uh, for, for all, all sports in our background. Originally the foundations of our company were really built on, uh, NFL combine training. Um, so that's why we've been able to build out in other sports. However, when we moved, when we were at Houston Christian, we had good relationships with coaches that allowed us to develop our craft in other ways and help them on the skill acquisition side. But then when I moved out to this facility, we actually operate out of one of the largest uh, baseball facilities in the state of Texas uh, called Premier Baseball of Texas. And we work closely uh, with not just their teams and their athletes, but their coaches as well. And so just over the, over the years and over the time, we've developed really good relationships where, uh, for instance, one of the hitting coaches here is a, is a man named Jeremy Eisenhower, uh, who originally is from uh, the Kansas City area. And then uh, the pitching coach that we work closely with here is uh, David Evans. And uh, he works with a, a lot of the upper level pro guys, like I said, Grayson and, and guys like that. Um, but so we have those really close relationships where I, I'd say if an athlete walks in, like let's say one of our professional athlete, athletes walks in, they're going to assume that we're all part of the same company because we are all part of the same team, even though technically they're, they're not on our payroll. We just work uh, in accordance with the team and then we communicate and develop plans um, around individual athletes, what they're seeing. Uh, and we can apply it differently in the weight room. That helps us hone our skills to develop, whether it be throwing programs or or swing development plans or anything like that. So, uh, talking to specifically about your guys's own programs, and uh, like maybe we can just start high school and then work work way up to just professional. So I assume for high school, like the, it starts with just getting like having functional strength and then building out programs from there. Like take me through like what what is it like when a high school baseball player comes in to your facility for the first time? Yeah, so honestly, the the process, the onboarding process is the same regardless of the age of the athlete. Uh, we start everybody with an initial assessment, and what that is going to what you said was more of the. Uh, Functional movement, screen, it's a it's our variation of that combined with some orthopedic joint range of motion and muscle strength testing. Um, and we also do a body composition as part of a nutrition assessment and just a um, an audit of where they currently are nutritionally. And then we do uh, a goals assessment, which is really just getting them to write out their goals, motivations, things like that on paper with specific prompted questions to really sort of see what they're what their aim is and what their um, time period looks like in their head and uh, what they think it's actually going to take the sacrifices it might be. And then we build out a, a individualized programming from there. So with a high school athlete, going to what you said about functional strength, oftentimes their biggest um, weakness or the biggest constraint in their performance is a level of strength or movement capacity, coordination, things like that. So that's why a lot of times people perceive high school training as general in some ways, 
because there are general needs. And all that means is it's not that if you're a high school athlete, it's not that it's not specifically what you need and it's just a general program. It is specifically what you need. It just happens to be similar to what many other high school athletes need at that age. And the higher you go up that pyramid of development through um, higher training ages and collegiate and professional athletes, the less similar and the less low-hanging fruit there is. So with a high school athlete, yeah, we're going to notice for 85% of them or so that they're going to need to develop some strength and some lean mass. So that's strength and hypertrophy for us, and they're going to need to uh, develop some movement adequacy. Um, once we get to professional athletes, it's not 85% of those people that need all that anymore. It's probably more like 20, 30%. And so it becomes, it seems less general and more specific, even though it's specific there too. It's just a larger population that needs the same thing. And so we just tailor to those demands. So with a youth athlete, we're not going to be putting on a lot of mass, the pre-high school age, pre-peak height velocity. We're not going to be putting on a lot of mass. So we understand what they need specifically, um, but it's going to be similar to other kids that age. And then with uh, pro athletes, we just can hone in a little bit more on some on details because they seem to have a lot of low-hanging fruit already for the most part. Yeah, I totally agree with uh, with everything you just said. It never made much sense to me why like the individualized programs were such a hot thing for high school athletes when, you know, they didn't, they don't even know how to, they're not even hinging or they don't, they can't squat or deadlift anything cor- like correctly. Like why are we getting so doing all these crazy stuff when they can't do functional movements first? It just right. never made much sense to me. Um, and, that's, and that's also to, just to your point there, like the, the mindset that I think needs to change with some of these athletes is, um, Okay, so if, yeah, you can't hinge, so we're going to have you do some sort of an RDL variation or a hip reaching variation. Okay, does that make it not specific? It's specific. It's what you need. You don't know how to hinge. But just so happens that eight out of ten other people in the room have no idea how to hinge either. So you're going to see a lot of people doing the same thing. But that doesn't make it a general cookie-cutter program. It just means this is what you need, and it just happens to be similar. How do you go about speaking of the higher level athletes now that they, they know how to, you know, they know how to hinge and squat and do every, all those. How do you pick those exercises in between the, the big ones or the squat, the deadlift, which I assume most of them are doing. How do you know which exercises to put in their programs to, to capture that, that low hanging fruit? Cause I'm sure that's really where your job gets right. tough because I mean, someone who knows, you know, I mean, anybody could just, program a deadlift or squat in but once you're dealing with high level athletes that's kind of where it separates you know people who know what they're doing from just the amateurs yeah and that's where it does get more complex so i would say there's no there's no short answer so i'll just kind of go into how we make those decisions so first we want to look at the athlete as an individual see what makes them successful because as like a pro athlete they're already successful to some degree so what are the special qualities that we don't want them to lose that already make them successful? So for some, some people, uh, they might uh, rely on a lot on their elasticity some people, or flexibility, elasticity, stiffness. Some people might rely more heavily on brute force development, like the big, strong guys, and that's what's made them um, successful. Um, so we want to start there and then we 
based on their assessment, I want to see if there are any uh, weaknesses, imbalances, or dysfunctions that we've seen that uh, that might be holding them back from uh, utilizing what they're already good at. And we don't necessarily always want to, for instance, if we have a, a, a springy elastic athlete, but they're not really force dominant and they're not necessarily the strongest guy in the weight room, we don't necessarily want to make them the strongest guy in the weight room because they're not as good at it. Um, we do want to address their strength, but we really want to focus on doubling down or address their weakness, which is strength in this case. But we really want to double down on what their current strengths are, which would be that elasticity. And we, the last thing we want to do is dampen any of that. So um, that's why we look at it at the individual first. And then let's say we notice that this um, force dominant athlete, so a big, strong guy, um, is limited in but let's just say internal hip interrotation uh, bilaterally, um, but they seem to have passive range, just actively aren't able to get there. Uh, so we can see that as a potential limitation to their overall performance. And so let's say if we're doing, if we're programming some sort of a, a squat or a single leg squat or something like that, we might pair that with uh, some interrotation work uh, that, that actively takes them through range of motion. Um, and then, let's say an athlete, a better example or more, more upper level example for the skill development side, let's say an athlete has, um, they're strong, but one of the big critiques in their game, is if we have a pitcher that doesn't separate well, um, their, their, their shoulders lead their hips or, or, or they just turn at the same time or whatever it might be. Um, we might uh, work in med ball variations to uh, work on that through external cueing as opposed to internal cueing. So instead of saying like, hey, let's separate and open up the hips and keep the shoulders closed, uh, more so doing like a, a medicine ball uh, shot put or teeth throw where we load a little bit of a heavier load. And this is where we can get into like the details of how we go about um, assigning certain loads. But if we go with the heavier big slam med ball and we just tell them to throw it as hard as they can at the wall laterally, their hips are going to lead because the further the ball is away from the center of mass, um, then the more lag that's going to happen when I go to cue them to throw it as hard as they can. Because they go to throw as hard as they can, that that weight's going to cause a little bit of a lag and a stretch, and the hips are going to clear. And so it's going to create that separation without us thinking about it. Um, so we might uh, pair different uh, exercises uh, with those kind of med ball uh, drills to, to get more specific to what this athlete's needs are, but it, it really just depends on the time in the off season. So if we're beginning of the off season, middle of the off season, end of the off season, um, on how we go about addressing in between exercises and how long we stay on a strength progression versus a power or speed progression as well. Yeah. You mentioned um, something earlier. You just said where, it, you know, if someone, for example, has limited internal rotation in, in one of their hips, how do you go about navigating trying to change them from, like, accepting who they are and maybe that's why they're successful? Mm-hmm. So, typically, I would say a, a movement restriction that is not uh, structural, I don't necessarily think that Outside of it being an adaptation specifically for from or for their sport, um, I don't necessarily see it as a potential benefit. So uh, an example here, if, if, uh, if I'm measuring shoulder internal external rotation for a pitcher, I'm 
often uh, for any thrower, but especially a pitcher, I'm going to be expecting to see a lack of internal rotation on the throwing side and an excess of external rotation on the throwing side. Now, trying to create symmetry should not be the goal. Understanding that this is a, an adaptation from their sports that actually is a performance benefit, right? Um, and so, like, the overdiagnosis of GERD um, or internal rotation deficit, I think, has become a problem. How we go about navigating um, navigating whether or not to, to address an imbalance or dysfunction would be, one, to think critically on, is this something that is a performance benefit in their sport that has um, become an adaptation in order to perform the sport at a high level? And then if it is, then we're not really trying to address it. Um, we might try to actually uh, use it more effectively. Um, if it's not, then what we do is we go to, um, we refer to our physical therapist, Dr. Stephen Eslas here, and we have him assess whether or not that we're looking at a, a, um, a lack of range of motion that is structural, uh, meaning is there like some uh, bony structures that are in the way, or is this something that passively he should have because uh, we're not actually reaching joint end ranges. And if that's the case, then we would, uh, if it's the case that they do have more range um, potential and we see it as a potential benefit to their sport or, a, or we see the limitation as a, as a performance decrement, then we'll address it through programming. If we don't see it as a performance decrement or that like hips, hips are a big one. Everyone feels tight in the hips. There's not a single athlete that's like, oh, my hips feel great all the time and always loose. So everyone feels some degree of tightness. Now it's important to assess, are we reaching a bony limitation or a joint end range? That is something that not only are we not going to be able to push through, but we don't want to try or even people are like, well, are you really doing any damage if you just like try to push into it? If it's not there, it's not there. Well, yeah, you can do a lot of damage. You can you can actually limit that range even more by creating more bony adaptations from the friction and, and from the, the wear and tear on the, on the joint itself to where it actually um, creates um, more bone material. And then that's actually going to limit the range even further. And so the more you press into it, the worse it's going to be. And then you could be risking injury on some of the passive tissue in there as well. So I, I don't know if I directly answered it, but that's kind of our thought process. One, is it a performance benefit? If it is, we want to keep it and we want to actually um, work to utilize it well. And then if it's not a performance benefit, is it structural? If it's structural, we don't touch it. And then if it's a performance decrement, like we see it as a potential performance decrement based on how that athlete moves, then, okay, we're going to address it. And if it's not, then you know, it might not be a priority, but it might be something we work on in the, in the background. Yeah, no, I, I like, I like what you said there. I, I totally agree with it's a structural issue. Like you definitely best not to touch it. I guess I was just, I, I asked that question just because I've had certain players who, for example, in their stance or when they stride, you see their foot strides naturally way opens more. It's because that left hip, like there's some issues going on there and, but they've always done that their entire career. So I guess my mind was just, all right, they got some pretty successful hitters I see doing that. If we tried to change that, you know, would that hurt them long-term? But I thought you answered that very, very well. So to, to that point too, um, and I appreciate that, but to that point, um, I think there's an important thing that some people, some coaches don't necessarily understand in the industry is 
just because if you change the potential doesn't mean you're going to change the pattern. The pattern is not just going to change because there's more movement potential there. So if, if there's a hip issue that leads them opening early, but it's led to a high level of uh, success, just making that, putting that hip in a better spot uh, doesn't necessarily mean that their, their strides get to change in any sort of way, unless we're trying to retool that pattern as well. Uh, patterns and uh, just how the athletes have compensated over time will still be there, even if the potential um, range is, is present. Couldn't they relearn the pattern though? If they're, if now if they're physically able to do it more efficiently. Yeah. So they, you can read, you can learn a pattern. It's just a matter of just, let's say it's a joint range of motion restriction on the left hip for a right-handed hitter. Um, and it's causing them to, their, their front foot's opening up more on, on foot strip. Okay. So opening up that range of motion hip, leads to potential for a new pattern, but it doesn't mean the pattern is just going to change just because they're limited because of internal. So like, let's say you want them to land here with their foot and they're landing like here with their foot. Um, just opening up that range doesn't mean that they're going to land here with their foot, which I think a lot of people think like, once you open it up, it's going it, to, or it doesn't mean it's going to be able to land here. It's going to still land here just because we open up this range. And I think some people think just because we open up range of, let's say, internal rotation to where they can land at more like that 45 degree or whatever it is that, that the coach wants them to land at, just because they have the potential for it, they're not going to get there solely on opening up the range. I think once you open up the range, then it leads to you can, you can teach a new pattern. Um, but if, you, if, you, if the pattern, if the limitation has led to actually an effective pattern, Meaning, like, let's say a, a guy with poor dorsiflexion, and it, meaning, like, you know, pulling their toe toward their shin. If they have poor dors, dorsiflexion on their back leg, but that's led to more of a vertical shin and more better direction and not really toey, um, we're able to use the whole foot better because we haven't been able to get to that position. Just opening up range of motion in the ankle doesn't mean now all of a sudden we're going to drift into our toes more. It just means that we have the potential to do other things. And uh, that pattern that was bred by that limitation that even was maybe a benefit um, doesn't necessarily go away just because we opened up the ankle mobility. And that was kind of what I was trying to get at there. Okay. I got you. What I assume pitchers working with pitchers is uh definitely a little bit maybe more challenging than hitters in the sense that more can go wrong and nobody really knows why pitchers get hurt sometimes whereas hitters is like making they'll just you can hit all day long that type of a thing i mean what what are your thoughts on pitchers tommy john surgery i mean just in in general guys getting hurt i know it's like nobody knows but i assume you you have some theories yeah so so there, I mean, there's so many theories that you go down a bunch of different rabbit holes in any direction you look at. So I guess I'll put it this way. As far as why it's more challenging in the first place, not just because more can go wrong, but because there's more within your control as well. So as a pitcher, so a pitcher has the ball, so performance is well within their control. Um, sure, there are other circumstances, but a hitter is at the whim of a pitcher, right? Right. Um, now, they good hitters can hit good pitching. 
they don't they don't only hit mistakes. That's a misnomer. But at the end of the day, like um, they're not in control necessarily of their batting average. Where a pitcher has more control over their stats than a hitter does. So um, there's a lot more pressure on working with a pitcher because you can see some results play out. Now, most of I've, I've had you know like every other um, coach, I've had pitchers go down with Tommy John surgery. Um, that and several of them come back saying that the doctor said from the MRI it looked like. They had been tearing for years, and so it's like an accumulation. Um, then others, you know, that you can you can point to, like maybe they, they were getting good night's sleep for a week, and the recovery was bad. And what you're seeing right now with like the sticky stuff, and people saying they're having to grip more, and so they're more sore, and their flexors and pronators are beating up a little bit more. Um, and so the recovery uh, can play a role, leaving that elbow exposed. Um, mechanical problems uh, you can look at um, lever lengths and say like all right well at first strike if that arm is like still not up or it's way behind 90 degrees um, in elbow flexion then we're, we're dealing with more torque there uh, I know there's a lot of um, people that like to blame weighted balls um, you could say um, losing range of motion in the shoulder is going to put more of a demand on, um, on the elbow by creating compensation patterns. There's so many rabbit holes we could go down on it, um, where these are all contributing factors, early specialization playing since they're, they're young and, and not ever actually having downtime of throwing, I think is a factor. I think all of these things are important factors. Um, but I don't think any of them can tell the complete story because all of them are in a vacuum, um, when they're presented. So like, even if I say, I think off season training, the quality, let's say, if I just say, I think the quality of off season training is a factor in whether or not a pitcher goes down. Okay. Well now that doesn't take into account for that takes account for two hours a day, one or two hours a day for four or five, six days a week. And it doesn't take into account the rest of the time. Whether how they're sleeping, nutrition, hydration, it uh, doesn't take into account spring training schedules, spring training routines, what the teams having to do. It doesn't take into account, um, you know, a, a, they threw a, a nine-inning complete game the week before, and their and their cuff was beat up, and limited limited shoulder mobility led to more stress on the elbow in this outing, or they slipped. They kept slipping on this mound, and so they were leading to an early release point, which was putting more stress on the elbow. Um, I just don't think you can really account for it all and point your finger at one thing and say, I think this is the problem leading to the, the epidemic, if you will, of uh, Tommy John surgeries. But I do think my general thought on it, to wrap, to wrap up my thought here, would be uh, that – as pitching and pitching development has evolved and progressed um, and velocity became the, the biggest KPI um, based on performance and, and what's actually effective on the field, then you're starting to deal with techniques, but not only techniques that could be deemed as riskier because it involves throwing at a higher volume at higher intensities, um, you're also dealing with um, just the higher overall forces, the harder you have people throwing. And so I think 
it's just become a product of the evolution of the game is that you're, you're flirting with the edges of human performance uh, is my opinion. Um, just the same way as if I drive 40 miles an hour, I'm at less of a risk of a car accident as if I'm driving in 90 miles an hour. Neither guarantees me anything. I can still get a record for you. I can still get, I can still drive safely at 90, but I would say if everyone drove 90 miles an hour, you'd see more wrecks than if everyone drove at 40 miles an hour. So I think right now you have the average velocity in MLB has climbed to such a degree that I think you're seeing just more car crashes uh, based on human performance. Every, the hot, the, the closer you get to the edge, every little thing matters more when you're still operating well under the threshold of performance, whether it's in a car or in the human body, things can be slightly off and everything still kind of works fine, right? Like I haven't had, I haven't had my tr- truck serviced in years and I, and it sounds a little funny, but it runs fine, right? Um, you can't do that with a race car, a NASCAR. You know, you know, one thing, the alignment's slightly off and you're ending up in a car crash that could kill a driver. So that's kind of my opinion on the state of arm health and, and Tommy John surgery at this point. Well, that makes me feel better because I my max is about sixty miles an hour, so I, sh- I shouldn't have have to worry about Tommy John surgery in, anytime soon. But um, yeah, no, that's it's it just it's kind of fascinated me. It, it makes sense what you're saying, though. I mean, I've seen guys, pitchers, 190, 180 pounds throwing balls, 97, 98 miles an hour. It's like, man, like no wonder. I mean, that the, their body just can't hit that. That's an insane amount of stress on that arm. Um, so yeah, I, I definitely. I, I definitely agree with with what what you just said there. One of the things that I was wanting to ask you about because I've seen it a little bit, I've done it a little bit myself because I had surgery on my own hamstring um, a few years ago. Is um, MAT movement activation technique? Mm-hmm. Have you done any research on that? Do you do that at all? And like, what are your thoughts? So that's interesting. So that's uh, Greg Roscoff, um, his his operation. Uh, so when I was early in my careers, when I was first exposed to MAT, um, I don't think, just like any modality, I think it's a tool in the tool belt. I don't think there's an end-all be-all to anything necessarily. And I think the problem is when, when practitioners start to see um, their tool as the holy grail as opposed to just another tool that can be used in a, in a, in a functioning form. And so unfortunately, that's some of the experiences that some people have with MAT is that they, 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 uh, some of the practitioners tend to talk down about other modalities like, Oh, I'm sorry. They won't, they won't be able to help you at PT and things like that, which just, it's not helpful. However, uh, like the low grade isometrics and, and the palpations I've, I've seen do uh, great things with, with some athletes. Um, obviously now I'm not MAT certified, but I've known some people that, that were, and I actually uh, worked with a coach early in my career that, that had that certification and he worked with some athletes and was able to open up some ranges. And um, I know some athletes absolutely swear by it. I believe, uh, shoot, you could get me in trouble with this golfer. Who's the Bryson DeChambeau? Yeah, DeChambeau. He's a, he's a MAT guy um, from what I understand. And then I know John Elway swore by it. And so there's obviously benefits and we actually use some of the, um, some similar, not, not the same, but some similar 
specific joint angle, low, uh, low grade isometrics for some arm recovery purposes. So I think there's a benefit. I don't claim to be a, an expert in, in MAT and their, and their new, new practices or anything like that, but I've seen some good things. Yeah. I, I just, I, for me, it, it kind of makes sense a little bit from a, maybe just a hitting standpoint where it's, you know, before guys go and not necessarily on the on deck circle or anything like that, but I mean, before they hit for the day or maybe it's just once a week or once every two weeks, like they have a tune up a little bit, work on, you know, whatever, whatever their, you know, hips, glutes, hamstrings, whatever it is, like actively get some work in there. And then that allows them to utilize their, their body a little bit better. I just know from personal experience, having done it after having surgery on my hamstring, I literally changed my my life in the sense that I I didn't have I, I was now able to get passive range of motion with the hamstring like it wasn't hurting all the like all the time anymore so I think again you made a good point it's it's not the end all be all but I think it it definitely could be a very good tool in the toolbox for for certain players for certain people I totally agree with that it just um, like yeah, yeah. just like like any other modality it's it's yeah. it's good when applied in an appropriate way. One of the last things I wanted to, to talk to you about, I know you're a crazy busy facility, is in trying to increase power. You know, the pitchers, we've you know, the weighted balls, and there's all the sorts of different, you know, ways <coughs> we could go down with that when it comes to trying to increase miles per hour. But when it comes to trying to increase power for a hitter, I guess what, because I've read different studies, and I, I know I think Dr. Greg Rose has done some stuff like, the best time to try to increase powers when your bones are growing faster than your muscles um, because of, they're in that stretch motion or that stretch phase, I think he calls it. Yeah. And so, I mean, obviously that's when kids are you know, going through growth spurts and things like that. But how do you go about if someone comes in your facility, you know, 22, 23 years old, 20 years old, whatever it is, how do you go about trying to help them increase their their power from a hitting standpoint? Because there's a there's some freaking strong dudes out there in the big leagues, and if you don't have if you don't have some juice, like it's going to be tough. Like the way these pitchers are throwing, for sure. So going off a point you made on that just a second ago about uh, the growing athletes being a good a good time to develop some power, I think you know in strength conditioning, a lot of times we. Um, our industry likes to point to that you have to have a prerequisite level of strength because of the high forces that are involved in plyometrics and things like that, which is logical, but it, it's not accurate. So like that, that makes sense that like they would have to, like if we're having to absorb three times our body weight, then you should be able to half squat three times your body weight. But that's just not how the, the human body actually works. Like that's a logical thought process, but that's just not how it works where, plyometrics are, are really they're very safe for young athletes to do it. it's actually a really good time to do it like you just said uh but going to your actual question um of like if i have a 20 year old 22 year old athlete uh that's a minor league ball player that's looking to get a little more juice off the bat um there's a couple parts to it so one everything with our initial training goes back to the assessment like i said and so anything we can really affect in the weight room starts there. Are, are we seeing any leaks and or potential leaks and limitations based on their assessment process? Then it's trying to see, okay, are they lacking in any specific area, whether it be uh, generally speaking, whether it be 
uh, force production. So like their, their general strength work, um, are they, are they generally a strong athlete? Um, and people can argue different standards there, but, um, it's one of those things with the coaches. I, you kind of know what you see, you don't have to necessarily define every single um, aspect and like cut it off at 1.73% body weight or whatever. It's just, it's just, you, you'll know if they're deficit, if they have like a really glaring issue with strength. Um, and so are they limited there or are they limited in their speed? Can they, can they sprint? Are they fast? Can they jump? Um, things like that uh, relative to their body, their body mass overall. Um, you see they're just general movement patterns. Like, do they know how to hinge? Uh, can, can they, do they have the ability to really rotate? Um, and, and do they have thoracic rotation uh, capabilities and things like that that you would see from the assessment? And then, so one would start there. Are there any big, big rocks that we can kind of address? Okay. Are they, are they not very strong? Okay. Well then let's get them stronger. Are they, um, are they, do they move slow? Well then, okay. Strength techniques might not necessarily be the best way, but if they're slow and weak, then maybe we need to work on both of those things. Um, some, some people, uh, neglect the, the fact that momentum, uh, plays a role in a, in a swing or a throw. And so you understand the body mass at that point becomes, um, becomes a, uh, a, a factor there. So are they, are they relatively lower on the bell curve of like um, overall body mass compared to other athletes in, in a similar situation that might have more power? Um, and then you can look at uh, understanding the power. So what I, what I fear some coaches might say is, well, we're going to do more like Olympic lifts and things like that to develop power, where when we understand that power isn't exclusively plane specific, but there's a plain specific element to how we develop power. So uh, cleans very vertical, uh, vertically uh, dominant, and it's all in the sagittal plane, which just means everything's got to happen right here in front of us. So I say Olympic lifts, like if we're doing a clean, um, that's a lot of vertical force production. Well, that's great if we're talking about running in a straight line or we're talking about vertical jumps, but when we're talking about pitching or hitting, we're, all, we're also looking at um, that this is a multi-directional power output. There isn't one plane of motion. Everyone wants to say, oh, it's rotational. So just like these like robotic rotational med ball throws will fix everything. And that's just not it either, right? There's a linear component. There are vertical forces being experienced. Um, there's a rotational component and there's a sequencing um, thing that, that we need to understand as well. <laughs> and so uh, one was just trying to figure out where maybe the, the biggest weakness is in that and trying to develop power and speed in all of those planes of motion. Um, and then from, so once we can build a program to address, you know, lateral, um, lateral force production or power or speed, um, linear or vertical force production and speed and rotational force production and speed, um, then we can start looking at how they're actually training their swing. And I think some people just get in there and repetition, repetition, repetition. They want to take 300 swings and they're all at 75 to 80%. Well, if we want to develop some power, you actually have to train to, to do that at some point. Like a marathoner just doesn't become a sprinter because they get in the weight room. They have to actually sprint. Um, uh, a pitcher doesn't throw hard by throwing 70 miles an hour. That's not how they learn how to throw harder. 
they learn how to throw harder by trying to push that limit every now and then. It's not every single day. Just like hitting, there's a there's a skill and an approach to the swing and to to barreling the ball consistently and understanding what the pitcher is going to do and all that. But but at the same point is just like anything else, you can periodize certain rounds or days where your intent is to swing as hard as you can and not worry about the results. If we think, let's say if it's 15 swings or 20 swings or 30 swings one day a week that we're taking at max intensity, I don't think that's going to override the 200 other swings per day that you're going to take. Um, and I don't think it's going to override the movement patterning necessarily or like take away from your skill, but it might provide enough of a stimulus to give us a couple more, um, you know, miles per hour on your bat speed, which could help you with a little bit more power. And so we actually saw some success with uh, one of our athletes this offseason, uh, Max Burt, uh, with the Yankees organization. Uh, his average exit velos have, have gone up significantly. His percentage of higher exit velos has gone up significantly. So that leads us to say, all right, he's barreling the ball more. But when he does barrel it, his he's hitting the ball a lot harder and a lot further. And that's because like he had some intent in some rounds of his swings and he gained some mass and we worked on power and force and speed and all those different planes and, and didn't just try to oversimplify something that's so complex as, as hitting is. And I think, sorry for the long-winded answer here, but one of my biggest frustrations with, with hitting has been that they saw what pitching was doing to develop and they were like, oh, velocity, power, that sort of thing. Well, then we should just do the same thing on the hitting side and hit these balls as hard as possible and only worry about that, the, the power side. Well, then that's going to, you know, inevitably, if that's your sole focus is what's the result as far as exit velocity, then you're going to lay off those, those two strike approaches where you flick the ball the other way and, and get a base hit because it's going to hurt your exit below and teams don't really want to see it. So it's kind of led to this like all or nothing approach which is even harder with better pitching. So um, all that. There's definitely a balance. Definitely a balance. No question. Yeah. And I just don't, you know, it, you're 100% right. It's a balance. And it's not that it's bad that we're teaching exit velocities. It's not bad that we're teaching power. It's just like, are, are we going a little bit overboard generally in that direction? But I would say that that's how you go about approaching development of of uh, bat speed or exit velocities and things like that is you, you have to actually treat a complex system as complex instead of trying to oversimplify it. I just, I have one follow-up question on that. So my mind would go to when it comes to and trying to increase power in the weight room is, you know, trying to increase rate of force development. Wouldn't it make sense to, if you're doing like a, a trap bar deadlift and you uh, did, you know, VBT, to, to be able to track that over time, where yeah. if that number continually gets better, have you seen where if that number gets better and they're able to, you know, you are be able to put more weight on and move faster that that has translated to athletes hitting the, their exit velocity going up. So I would say, I would say generally speaking, yes, I would say it's, it's more anecdotal than um, numbers on a, on a page mainly because like we just talked about the skill of hitting is so much different as far as having control of the outcome. Um, they might swing the bat faster and the ball, they just miss hit it five times in that round. So it's going to be hard to find that linear correlation like that. 
um, without like a full-on lab setting. But I would say yes. I would say all of that plays a role as far as how it how it um, where it falls on the force velocity curve. Um, just like I think someone that's just generally weaker, like let's say a two hundred. This is an outlandish example, but a two hundred pound athlete comes in and can't trap our deadlift three hundred pounds. Okay, well I, I I've seen a pretty good correlation with a lot of high school athletes, and I would imagine it'd be similar that if they can get that from that 300 to 350, then we're probably going to hit the ball a little harder too. And if we just add a little bit of mass on someone that's underweight, you're going to hit the ball a little harder too. And then I think if you, you know, the VBT style programming, the reason I do like that is it creates intent on every single rep as opposed to cashing in some reps just because you can't, you can do it because it's not a max load. Um, and it creates, especially like on a trap bar deadlift, it creates um, the need for early rate of force development because if we're going off average bar velocity, then that takes into account that slow pull off the ground and then the fast explosive part at the top. If you really want to increase that average bar velocity, you're going to have to be faster in that initial push, which is really what matters when it comes to like the rate of force development when it when it translates to hitting is like that early rate of force development how quickly can can we get zero to 60 as opposed to can we get to 60 miles an hour is how quickly can we get there how early in that in that movement can we get there and i think bbt plays a huge role in that and then just like i think sprinting i think sprinting helps jumping helps um yeah, I think anything that's on the force velocity curve could theoretically help if that seems to be um, deficient or undertrained in that specific athlete. Awesome. Kevin, I greatly appreciate your time. Um, this has been a lot of fun. I've learned a lot. I know a lot of people listening to this will too. Um, I'm actually going to be in Houston in late, late December, early January. So I'll have to stop by and, and check you guys out. Um, yeah. So it'll be, I'll have to make it. It's not supposed to be a baseball trip, but uh, I'll, I always make it. I'll have to make it a baseball trip. So I, I appreciate it, man. It's been a lot of fun. I appreciate it, man. Thanks for having me on. And, and anytime, stop on in whenever you want.